we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do verses 1 through 10. There are 2 Corinthians 12 as we get down to the end. Um, big topic tonight. Big topic tonight, and it's a heavy topic to go through. But before I get started, I wanted to announce real quick, so that way it could be on the CD. Their daughter asked me to. Tonight is Anita and Tony Stecksholte's 20th anniversary. So, and, and you can clap, but they're not here tonight. So... That's why she wanted it on the CD, so that way she could take the CD home and they could listen to her. So now for the rest of the Chronicles of Harvest History, 20th anniversary for Anita and Tony. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I absolutely love these first 10 verses of this chapter. They are very deep. They are very heavy verses because you're talking about two things. You're talking about heaven and you're talking about suffering. Now, we're going to have a conversation tonight about heaven, but the truth of the matter is we're really not going to answer a lot of questions about heaven because heaven being our ultimate destination as a born-again Christian, do you realize how silent the Bible is about heaven? There's a lot of generalities about it. We know what's going on up there. We know in the book of John that Jesus said he's preparing a mansion for us. He's been working on that. We know in the book of Revelation that says that there's no more tears, no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more curse. We know that. We know that up in heaven we have have a new body, a glorified body. We understand up in heaven that we'll be able to have direct access to God like we can't imagine for all of eternity. We have hints of heaven of what's going on, but an actual detailed picture of it, we don't. That always has bugged some people. It's kind of bugged me sometimes. And I started thinking about it. And there's a little bit of a phrase here tonight that we're going to hit. In verse 4 it says, and he was called up into paradise and heard inexpressible words. And you've heard me use this analogy before. It's nothing new. I probably stole it from a different pastor. How could you, first off, number one, describe heaven? I mean, I mean, how would you really try to describe it? Think about the big things in the world today. How would you describe it to someone who has not a clue what you're talking about? We've used these examples before. How would you describe the Grand Canyon to someone who doesn't have a clue what it is? What's well, a big hole, big trench. So I'm going to drive all the way out there and look at a big hole in the ground. Well, no, it's more than that. How do you describe it? How do you describe an ocean? How do you describe a big body of water to someone who's never seen it? You can't describe it. We have to have pictures. I remember when we drove out to California years ago, and I remember them telling us about the mountains. As you leave Kansas and go to Colorado, and I remember looking onto the horizon, you can finally just start to see the peak of the mountains. My first thought was, this is totally unimpressive. But as you get closer and closer, the mountains just start taking up the entire horizon. And to truly describe the Rocky Mountains as someone who's never seen it, it's like, you can't. So to try to describe heaven in verse 4, they're inexpressible words. God could try... But our English language is so limited, he gives us little bits and pieces. Like I said, no sickness, no death, no curse. A mansion waiting for us. Eternity of health. Eternity of being in the presence of God. Now think about this, parents. When you have something exciting with your kids, don't you kind of have a little bit of a joy of hanging that over their heads? I do with our boys a whole awful lot. We say we're going to go do something. Elias is our firstborn. He's going to have an ulcer by the age of 10 because he just gets so worked up about stuff. Judah... He's just along for the ride. He doesn't care. And Kenan will probably grow up and do something illegal. I'm sure of that. One of those things are going to happen. But, but Elias, Elias just can't handle not knowing. And it can be the most fun thing in the world. Elias, we're, we're going to go do something that's going to be amazing. You can't wait. Judah will be just like, that's exciting. Kenan would be, that's exciting. Elias would be, when are we leaving? Where are we going? What route are we taking? Do you have enough money? You know, he would have all those questions. For you firstborns out there, your life have to be miserable. You just must have miserable lives as a firstborn. So the thing is, with heaven, God really can't explain it where our mortal, finite minds could really grasp it. It's something inexpressible, as it says in verse 4. So generally when we do a teaching on heaven, 
it usually brings up more questions than there are answers. And that's usually what happens a lot. Is well, what about this and what about that? Well, the Bible is really mysteriously silent on that subject where God says, just trust me, it's going to be good enough. In fact, it's not going to be good enough, it's going to be great. Now, let's talk a little bit more about this, though, because look at verse 1. Now, you have to remember a little bit of background here. This last chapter of chapter 11, for lack of a better word, has been Paul defending himself. If you remember correctly, the church at Corinth, Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to them. It really wasn't received as well as Paul wanted. Basically, the people who didn't like Paul in the church at Corinth said, Paul cares about Paul. Listen to us. Paul's nobody. Paul's nothing. So Paul had to go through his defense of him being an apostle. So he spends all of chapter 11 defending himself. Well, now he kind of gets to, if you will, the cream of the crop of his defense. Verse 1 of chapter 12, it says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Paul says, you want to boast about who's closer to the Lord? He goes, I don't want to get into this, but if you want to boast about it, let's talk about visions and revelations. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was called up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. And we'll stop right there. Real quick, third heaven, that sometimes causes confusions for people. The first heaven is the sky, the clouds that we see. The second heaven is space, the universe that we see. The third heaven then would be the abode of God there, the three heavens. So Paul is basically saying here, and he's doing this humbly, because I know a man in Christ, sure looks like he's talking about himself here, that was taken up to heaven. God revealed things to him. It was inexpressible words, verse 4, which is not lawful for a man to utter. But Paul's been there. How are you going to top that? I mean, seriously, how can you top that? If you're in a little tit-for-tat conversation on who's closer to the Lord, well, God revealed this to me, oh yeah? Well, I wrote a book of the Bible. Oh, yeah, well, I wrote two books of the Bible. Oh yeah, I walked with Jesus. Oh yeah, well, I went to heaven. <laughs> You can't top that one. So basically, this should silence any of the critics of Paul. Is he says, I've been there, you haven't, so let's just be quiet about it. Now, I have to share three pet peeves of mine when it comes to heaven. And actually, and I don't usually follow my notes to the word, but I actually wrote this word down, pet peeves of mine when it comes to visions, revelations, and heaven. Because I, I see some things that sometimes frustrate me a little bit, and I want to choose my words carefully. I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes tonight, and don't think I'm trying to do that. If you've got a question on how I'm presenting it, please come to me afterwards. Let's talk about this. There's a guy in the book of Job. Remember, Job has his three friends. Job's going through this really difficult time, and one of the three friends, his name is Eliphaz, if you remember him. Eliphaz is an interesting guy. When it comes to his time to speak, this is what he says in Job chapter 4. Now a word was secretly brought to me. And my ear received a whisper of it and disquieting thoughts from the visions of the night. When deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me in trembling, which made all my bones shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice saying, stop right there. Eliphaz is really into this. Have you ever met somebody like that? I've met some people like that. The Lord is constantly revealing things to them. And only to them. Deep, dark visions. And you see this with Eliphaz here, that it's secretly brought to me. Secretly. I knew a guy, if you remember correctly in the book of Revelation, there's something called the seven thunders in the book of Revelation that God has not revealed. Well, he told me God revealed them to me. And he said he could share them to me at a Bible study. I started thinking, wait a second. God says he hasn't revealed this to anybody, but he revealed it to you? I know you. God would not choose you to reveal them to 
And so what happens is you have these people. I remember one time there was another guy that came up, and I remember him mentioning something to me. He goes, he goes have you ever thought why the Holy Spirit reveals things to me and not other people? I don't think he does. But that's the Eliphaz. The word was secretly brought to me. I've seen people receive mailings in the mail that says, the Lord has given me a word of wisdom about you, and I'm not kidding. You send in your love gift, I will reveal to you what that word of wisdom is. Now, come on. God does not charge for visions and revelations. But you have the Eliphazes of the church. Secretly, God is bringing things to me. Whispers in the middle of the night. Look at these things. Fear came upon me and trembling, made all my bones shake. A spirit passed before my face. The hair on my body stood up. Later on in Job chapter 42, God basically tells Job, forget everything that Eliphaz said. It wasn't me. Now, does this mean that God does not speak through dreams and visions? Of course I'm not saying that. It says right out there in Acts chapter 2 that in end times that God will use dreams and visions. He will. That is a way that the Lord communicates. And I'm not trying to sound this on both. So there's been times where the Lord has revealed things like that. God does move like that. He does work like that. But the problem is when you take that and you elevate that, that I'm more special than you. I remember one time someone came into my office and said that the Lord gave him a vision. And I'm not kidding. They looked at me and they said, but I don't know if you're worthy enough to hear it. Now, them are fighting words. That's the way I kind of look at that. And people have that type of mindset. Revisions and revelations revealed only to you, be given only at a special service. We've got to be careful when we say, thus saith the Lord. You better make sure that the Lord is thus saying it, if you're saying, thus saith the Lord. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 13, the Old Testament had a really simple way to weed out false prophets. They said, if you make a prophecy of God and it does not come true, the result of that was what? You were supposed to be stoned to death. That really made you think twice about saying, thus saith the Lord. Now, I want to stress this again. I'm not saying the Lord cannot speak through dreams and visions because His Word makes it abundantly clear in Acts chapter 2 that He can and He will, especially during the end times as we get closer. But you also have to see the flip side of this. You have the Eliphazes of this world in Job chapter 4, and you've got to be careful about that. You've got to be careful. And you see a lot of this in the church today. As people sound very spiritual. The Lord revealed this to me. Well, how are you supposed to argue with that? I wasn't there when the vision was given. I wasn't there when the revelation was given. But anytime you see that vision and revelation start taking over, and that becomes the ministry and the focus, you've got to stop a little bit. Because here's Paul that actually went up to heaven himself, and he goes, you know what, I don't really want to talk about it. He goes, I'd rather talk about my weaknesses, my infirmities. In fact, look what he says there in verse 4. How he was called up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Paul says, I can't talk about it. Now, now, some people have said, well, the reason Paul said that he can't talk about it is because he was not supposed to talk about it. Now, that's not really how it gets translated. I'm going to read to you here out of the New Living Translation. This is what it says right here. He goes, I was called up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. Now, I want to choose my words very carefully here because I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but it seems like in the years I've been walking with the Lord, I've been saved for 18 years, you see little things pop up and the church, and the body of Christ. And sometimes you see these things pop up of people that have gone to heaven for a little bit and come back. I don't know if that stuff's true or not. I'm not here to make a judgment call on those books or not. I'm just saying that we know for a fact that Paul was called up into heaven. In verse 4, he goes, he goes, I can't explain it. He goes, I can't talk about it. So therefore, it was something that was so inexpressible that he couldn't express it. But you see all the time today about people being taken up to heaven, and they sure express it very, very eloquently. And it's amazing, especially from the world's point of view, and I'm not saying from a Christian point of view, from a secular point of view, when the world, when somebody always dies, what do they always see? There's a light that's telling them it's okay. Go back. Isn't it fascinating 
What does verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 11 says? And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. I've always thought that was fascinating. A non-believer wants to hear that everything's okay. Because that's what Satan wants that non-believer to hear sometimes. And I've always thought, Lord, isn't that interesting? So I'm not here to make a judgment call in every book written about heaven. I just know that Paul said, I was there, I went up there, and I can't talk about it. It's inexpressible. As King James says, it's unspeakable when it comes to those type of things. So you see this, that Paul really could have taken this as a stepping stone and says, you want to talk about it? Let's talk about it. He doesn't. In fact, he says, I'm going to boast. Guess what I'm going to boast about? Verse 5. Of such a one I will boast yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. Paul says, if I'm going to boast about anything, I'm going to boast about what? I am weakened. I will boast about the fact that I'm a worthless, horrible sinner, and God still loves me, and God still uses me. Now, that's pretty impressive. Look at verse 6. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears me from me. Because I'm not going to get into this. He goes, I'm a sinner. I'm weak. I have infirmities. God still uses me. That's the only thing I'm going to boast about is to God be the glory. Now, be careful in the church. There's something what I see a lot called the humble boast or the humble pride. This is not humble pride. Humble pride is, well, I know I'm no good at fill in the blank. And you really want people to say, oh, no, you're really good at it. I know I'm really horrible at this. I just, I just can't do that. No, I, you want people to say, no, you're really good. I've seen people have that humble pride before. This is not a humble pride. I really honestly believe that when Paul looked at himself in the spiritual mirror, I really think Paul, Paul sometimes stopped and said, why me? I went around killing Christians. Why me? Why are you using me? I mean, Paul had that great chapter in Romans, Romans chapter 7, where he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And he says, what a horrible, wretched man I am. I don't think that's humble pride. I think Paul really thought I am, well, he said he was. I'm the chief of all sinners, the least of all the apostles. That's what Paul said I will boast in, is my weaknesses and my infirmities, those things that I'm not good at. God be the glory, because God still uses me. Now, before we get to the second half of this passage here in verse 7, does anybody have any quick questions, comments about what we talked about with heaven or this humble infirmities that is our uh, building blocks the next to it? John. I mean, that's quite possible. I mean, because if you go through the end of Second uh, Corinthians 11, you go through his little list there, uh, verses 23 through 33. I mean, that guy went through more than what we can ever imagine. You know, in a couple of weeks ago, we did that whole message on suffering. Paul, seeing a vision of heaven, he finally saw, hey, it's worth it. It's worth it. And once again, I want to make sure this is clear. I'm not saying the Lord can't take somebody to heaven. He's God. As soon as you say, well, God doesn't do that, God can do that. <laughs> he obviously did that before with Paul. So I'm not going to sit here and say the Lord doesn't take people up to heaven they don't come back because the Lord obviously has done that before in the past. But what you do see with Paul is that that's an interesting point there, John, is maybe God was saying, hey, there is a purpose for this. There is a reason for this. Anybody else have anything? Megan. Well, we're going to get to that in verse 7 for a little bit. That was just, that was just the, the teaser trailer, if you will. So we've got 10 minutes. Just be patient. It'll be exciting. Anybody else have anything here before we move on? Well, let's go to the next part here. Verse 7, unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, unless I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, and I am strong. Now this is a powerful few verses right here, a very powerful few verses, because what he says here in verse 7 is Paul was revealed more than, than probably anybody that's ever lived. Maybe closest would be Moses 
you know, the Bible says that Moses talked face to face with God. Now that, that's pretty big right there too. Well, what you see here with Paul, Paul says in verse 7, well, to make sure that pride doesn't get the best of me, the Lord allowed this messenger of Satan, a thorn in the flesh, to buffet me. Isn't that fascinating? Look at verse 7. Now, that word buffet literally means to beat. It carries this context of someone just pounding on you. And Paul said, God allowed this messenger of Satan to buffet me to make sure that I would not get prideful about what I went through. Now, some people stop and say, well, why in the world would God allow that to happen? Well, the answer is found right at the beginning of verse 7. Lest I should be exalted. Paul accepted the fact of, hey, if this wouldn't have happened, pride would probably have gotten the best of me. Now, that's a pretty honest statement. Paul said, pride would have got the best of me, so therefore God allowed this messenger of Satan to buffet me to basically keep me humble. That's a pretty mature statement to say. Did Paul like it? Of course he didn't like it, hence verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Now be honest, has anything ever happened to your life that you just don't like? God not allowing something to happen that you want to happen? God allowing something to happen that you don't want to happen? And you're sitting here saying, Lord, why? So you plead with the Lord. That word plead there is not strong enough. New Living Translation translates it begged, which is a better word. What that literally is saying is, I begged the Lord. And that's not even a strong enough translation. That word literally means to try to wear down. Parents, you remember when your kids were little? Mom, can I? Dad, can I? No, not right now. Okay. Mom, Dad, can I? Can I? No, not right now. They're trying to wear you down. So you finally just say, fine, go do it. I don't care. Just go leave me alone. That word literally means that Paul is begging God, trying to wear him down to the port of, Lord, take this from me. Now, have you ever had anything in your life that you wanted to happen so bad that you begged God as a little toddler pulling on his pant leg, Lord, please, or something that you wanted to stop or something you wanted to happen? I don't know what it is. Lord, please, Lord, please. Paul says, that's what I was doing. And God's response, verse 9 my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My boys love singing that song, My Grace is your, your Grace is Enough. And that's obviously where this song comes from. Your grace is enough. Lord, I have to have this happen in my life. I have to. No, my grace is enough. Lord, you have to take this from me. No, I don't. My grace is enough. That's tough, guys. And I'm not going to say I've reached the point of verse 9 of understanding that, accepting that, and liking that. Because you have things in your life you want to happen, or you have things in your life that you don't want to happen, and it's not happening or is happening. And God's saying, my grace is enough. And it's like, no, Lord, it's not. No, it is. If you have salvation in Jesus Christ, nothing else matters. Now, we either believe verse 9 or we don't believe verse 9. Do you believe that God's grace is sufficient? Nothing else matters. Well, it's good, but I really need this or I really want this. Then his grace is not sufficient for you. His grace is sufficient. That is all you need. And what he is saying is back to the question about affirmities. Paul is saying, in my weaknesses, my infirmities, I boast in those weaknesses because it's in my weaknesses I really see the strength of God. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, by me being weak, by God allowing this thorn in the flesh to be inside of me, God allowing this problem to hit me, it makes me weak, which therefore makes me strong because I realize I'm weak, and I start realizing, God, it has to be your strength that gets me through. So therefore, he says in verse 9, Therefore, most gladly, I'd rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul says, I can boast about God because I'm weak. I'm weak. I have tons of infirmities, but I'm weak, but I can still give God the glory. But note one little word there. Therefore, most gladly. 
don't know about you guys, I don't usually boast gladly in infirmities. We've joked out here numerous times before. We never say, Lord, thank you for this migraine. We've never said that. Lord, thank you for that horrible diagnosis at the doctor because that will give me more opportunity to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't say that. Paul kept the big picture here. He goes, I have salvation. I have grace in Christ. That is all that matters. So therefore, all these infirmities and weaknesses that I want to whine and complain about and beg and plead for the Lord to take away, nope. His grace is enough. So there he goes one step further in verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure. Look at these words. I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul realizes the strongest point in his life is when he's actually weakest. Because when he's weakest, he's not relying on his flesh. He's not relying on himself. He's relying solely on God. And so therefore, when he's relying solely on God, he realizes the strength of God. Think about it. If you're in good health, if the finances are good, work's good, family's good, everything's going good, subconsciously you kind of reach a point of, quote-unquote, I don't need God. We see this a lot out here at church, and I'm not trying to pick, but it's just a fact. When things are going good, there are certain people that kind of just disappear. When things start going bad, they start coming back. I'm thankful they're here. But why do they start coming back? Because in moments of infirmity and weaknesses, they realize I'm not strong. I need God. I need his help. But yet when things start going good, we just start thinking, I got it. I'm okay. I I'm doing well. You know, Pastor James always says you need to have a time of devotions. You need to have a time of prayer. You know what? I, I really don't have a time of devotions and prayer. And things work out okay. But you know, they said you're supposed to serve and be in church and share your faith. I, I really don't do those things. And things work out okay. Well, I'm just saying there's going to come a time where there is going to be infirmities and weaknesses. And that's why you build up in those times a good time of prayer and devotions and service and evangelism to say, Lord, I need this strength when it comes. Paul is saying here, in my moments of weakness, I realize that I have God's strength. Now, that is a really tough teaching. There's no way around that. This teaching is basically, I accept the fact that God allowed this in my life because he's using this to keep me humble and focused on him. I have begged, I have pleaded with him in verse 8 for him to take it away, but now I trust, verse 9, that my relationship with Jesus is sufficient. That's all I need. So it doesn't have to be taken away from me to have joy and peace because I have Christ. So now, therefore, I boast in my infirmities. I like my infirmities and weaknesses because I take joy in them because I realize that God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. That's one of the most mature passages in the entire Bible. That's the truth of it. And that takes a lot to reach that. Basically, what it comes down to is a simple three-word phrase, God is enough. Do you believe that? God is enough. If you believe that, then you can say, no matter what happens to me, I trust the Lord. But if you don't believe that God is enough, you're always going to be back at this passage saying, Lord, please take this away. Lord, please give this to me. I'll only be fulfilled if you allow this to happen. Lord, I'll only be happy if you remove this. If you would just remove this thorn from my life, I would have so much joy and peace. Well, then God's not enough for you. Or Lord, if you would just answer this prayer, then I would have so much joy and peace. Well, then you're saying God's not enough for you. God is enough. Look at verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, or my strength is made perfect in you. It's a tough passage. It's a tough teaching. But the truth of the matter is, it is. God is is enough. He's sufficient. He's all we need. Now we just have to say, do we believe it? Paul lived it. He went through it. He believed it. He was blessed by that. I don't know what you're going through tonight. You may have a thorn in your flesh that you're pleading with the Lord. Take it. Take it. Take it. Do you trust that God is enough? You may have something that you're saying, Lord, I cannot be happy in this life. I cannot be fulfilled until this happens. And you're saying that God's not enough. We have to trust that God is enough. And so what happens in verse 10, when the infirmities come, the reproaches, the needs, the persecutions, the distresses, Ah, oh, Lord, even though I'm weak, I am strong, I trust you. Paul's not only saying it, he lived it. What was his thorn in the flesh? We really don't know. I've heard lots of pastors and lots of teachers take a shot at it and take a guess. The truth of the matter is we don't know. And I think part of the reason why it's purposely vague 
is because everybody has their own thorn in the flesh. So what Paul's is is not yours, and what mine is is not yours, and what is yours is not mine. We all have something in our life. It's like, Lord, please. God says, you've got to trust that I'm enough. And that's what it comes down to, this message. God is enough. Do we believe and truly believe that God is enough? Anybody have any final questions, comments about this before we go ahead and close up here with a word of prayer? All righty, let's pray this. Lord, um, we don't want to just hear this message. We don't want to read this message. We want to apply this message. We want to pray this message into our life. Because I'm sure, Lord, there's people that are going to hear this message online or on CD or just here tonight that they're struggling. There's a thorn. And Lord, those thorns hurt. Those thorns hurt so bad. In the name of Jesus, help us to realize that you are enough. You are sufficient. Your grace is sufficient for us. Your strength is made perfect in weakness. Lord, we may plead with you. We may pray. We may ask you to take it. Lord, when you respond that your grace is enough, help us just to trust that and to obey, Lord. Thank you for our eternal home of heaven. Thank you for the mansion that you prepared for us. Thank you for there being no more curse, no more sorrow, no more sadness, Lord. Thank you for that. And Lord, we trust in faith that what a blessing it will be. But until that time as we go through weaknesses and infirmities, we want to give you the glory and strength because it's through our weakness your strength is revealed. Help us to walk in that strength. Lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week and God bless.